I do invite you to grab your Bible and, and turn to that section of Scripture there in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Um, as we continue to go through our series of In Christ, a series where we are looking at how we are together, uh, growing, and uh, we, we are trying to live our lives in Christ as we seek to help people discover and experience the life-changing love of Christ. Um, I'd like to invite the children, fifth grade and under, if uh, you would love to go to your classrooms. Now's the time to do that, and the teachers will be there in the back to receive you. Uh, today, we have the opportunity to dive into this very interesting text where Paul focuses in on three different uh, types of relationships that existed within the household uh, at this time, at the time the letter was written. The relationship between the husband and wife, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And, and in essence, Paul is addressing the question, what difference does being in Christ make in our household? He's kind of saying, okay, as we're living our life in Christ and we're doing that in relationship with each other, what does it look like? What, what makes the difference? In preparing uh, to uh, discuss this this morning, uh, I tried to do what Rob Bell suggests, which is turning the gym. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. The idea is to look at the text from a variety of different angles in order to see it more completely. So I read a variety of articles and commentaries. I listened to and read different messages and tried to put some thoughts together to share today. So if you have read or listened to people like Clinton Arnold or Ben Crawford or Bob uh, Diffenbaugh, Tim Keller, Andy Nessel, Gary Thompson, there's a whole list of other people that I reference. What I say at times may strike a familiar tune, right? Because I don't know that I'm going to tell you anything that's exceptionally original, but I do want to shine some light into some ways in which maybe we can turn the gym and look at this a little different. What I also discovered in, in reading and writing for this week was the amount of text that I desired to cover, the amount that Carla read for us, uh, is just too much, okay? And so I had these ambitions of covering all of that today because it's all together in the text, but the reality is, uh, for what I felt like was appropriate and necessary to say just on the husband-wife um, subject I was already at my word limit. And so since you probably want to do something else other than sit in here today, you want to go outside and sweat in the weather, uh, we're just going to cover the husband-wife relationship today, and we'll leave chapter 6 to address next week, uh, and we'll see how far that takes us. And I share that with you because it, it is my prayer that in our time together this morning, that we will position ourselves in a way to allow the Scriptures to reveal to us what it's trying to tell us, and we would allow that to transform who we are in Christ. And when we hear things today that we may not like, that we would seek to learn from it. And when we hear things today that we're like, yeah, that's right, that we would really look at what that means to us and the implications for us and the implications for our relationship with other people at the same time. So as we dive into this, let's take a moment and let's just pray and, and, and ask God to to be with us and to guide our hearts and minds this morning. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to be together here today, uh, to hear from your word, to read from it. And God, I pray that you would guide our thoughts, that you would guide my words as we seek to, to see you revealed through the scriptures, open our hearts to your leading. I pray that you would convict us where we need correction and that you would encourage us in our areas of weakness and that you would help us to feel your presence and your love in, in this community of believers. God, thank you for bringing us to such a time as this. Thank you uh, for this opportunity. May you be honored and glorified in our gathering today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So we begin with verse 21, uh, and it simply says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you have your Bible and you're looking at it, even if you're looking at it there on the screen, you will see that in the English, it's a, uh, it's a one-sentence thing, right? It stands by itself. But if you look at the, the overall text, it's actually the last clause of a longer sentence that Paul begins in verse 18. And if you go back to verse 18, you see that Paul is, is talking about the fullness of the Spirit. And I know we read those verses last week because that's what we were covering, but it greatly influences what we're going to talk about today, so I'm going to take a step back before we move forward. Verse 18 says, instead be filled with the Spirit. That's going to be important to remember as we walk through this this morning. Instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Remember what Paul is doing. In the second half of this letter, in Ephesians 4 through 6, he is saying that this is how we are to live in Christ. Since we are in Christ, that he you know, laid that out in the first three chapters, this is how we are to live. And here he is describing what that life looks like as we're filled by the Spirit. He's basically saying, if you are filled with the Spirit, then you're going to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. You're going to make music in your heart to the Lord. He's going to, you're going to give thanks to God for everything, and you're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's what's important for us to realize as we read it in our Bible. In fact, in, in some texts, there's a new heading when it gets to, to verse 22, right? You've got verse 21, and then there's a heading in verse 22. And what it makes us think is that those are separate. But, but what we need to realize is that when Paul begins here in, in verse 22, there's no indication of a different topic, idea, or change of any kind. Paul doesn't say, hey, we've been talking about what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and now I'm done with that, and now we're going to talk about relationships. No, instead, he says these relationships are kind of like bullet points underneath that thought of when you live your life that's filled with the Spirit— this is what it's going to look like. And he begins by saying, if you're filled with the Spirit, here's what your marriage is going to look like. And this is important because being filled with the Spirit, having the gospel message in your heart and impact the very heart of your being is what he's talking about. So rather than this being just some type of religion or an experience, it becomes a living reality that affects your whole entire life. This is something Paul believes in. In Colossians 3.16, he's talking about how believers are to live. He says that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He doesn't want the gospel, the word of God, uh, the words of Jesus to be something that we simply understand or believe. He wants it to be in us and to dwell in us, to be, to be filled with the Spirit and to allow the gospel to dwell in our hearts. Paul is saying that it's the same thing. It's allowing God to do his work within us. And then when we arrive in chapter 5, verse 21, we find out that, that one of the effects of the Spirit-filled life is that we serve one another. We submit to one another. As one author put it, a life in Christ erodes the normal human self-centeredness. Tim Keller, in his book, A Reason for God, a book that many of you are reading for our discipleship class, uh, he says that one of the things the gospel tells you is that you are a lot worse off than you think. And what he means by that is, according to the gospel, there's no way that you can clean up your life for yourself and save yourself. No amount of self-help or improvement can do that. Nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ can save you. He also says that another amazing thing the gospel tells you is that you are a lot more loved than you think. The Son of God, Jesus, he left heaven and came to earth to show his great love for you and, and for me, to demonstrate how amazing his love is by giving of himself 
for you and me. And in that respect, the gospel is so much more humbling and so much more affirming than we could ever imagine. Humbling because it removes that self-centeredness and affirming because you are worth it. It's Vidal Sassoon on steroids, right? You're worth it. Being filled with the Spirit of God takes that message and drives it to the very heart of who you are. It drives you to find your affirmation, not in what others think about you or society or what the world says about you, but you are affirmed by who you are in Christ. And then the result of that is that you are able to give more than you receive. You're able to put the needs of other people first. You are serving other people. Now, this idea of serving other people, right? A spirit-filled life leads us to serve other people. What does that have to do with relationships? Hopefully you're smiling at this point, right? Because it has everything to do with relationships, right? Serving, loving one another, it has everything to do with relationships. Uh, It's interesting because when we look at this, we find that when we come to a relationship between a husband and a wife, Serving one another and loving each other is essential if that relationship is going to be healthy. And, and Paul says that when two people are filled by the Spirit, it reshapes who they are. And he says, this is what it looks like. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and husband loves your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So that's good, and that's it, and we're done, right? End of story, we're all good? No. In my experience, the answer to that is no. Because just because Paul wrote it doesn't mean that this section of Scripture is not controversial. It doesn't mean people don't push back against it and ask a lot of questions, right? But I want to challenge us to turn the gym just a little bit. To look at this maybe through a slightly different lens than we have before. And I would suggest that the idea here is that when two people get married, the wife should grant the husband leadership in the marriage while the husband follows the example of Christ and his leadership, which is to die for his bride rather than abuse her or take advantage of her or anything like that. You see, I've contended for a long time that if a man were to love his wife the way Christ loves the church, she would willfully and joyfully submit to him. And if a wife would submit to the husband as to the Lord, he would have no choice but to give of himself to do whatever it was necessary to love. And from my vantage point, Not the gospel, not the scriptures. This is the gospel according to Craig, all right? Totally, completely my opinion here. The gospel according to Craig, the responsibility lies first and foremost with the man. If Michelle is fighting back against me and things are not going well, the first question I should ask, I don't always ask this question first, right? Because I'm a flawed, terrible human being at times. But the first question I should ask is, am I loving Michelle the way I've been called to love her? Am I loving her the way the Scripture calls me to love her? Men, we are called to lead in the way we love. And if we don't love that way, then honestly, what do we expect? But here's the deal, right? I think if if we honestly come to this text, I think it would be safe to say that granting leadership like Paul describes and loving and leading like that It's difficult to do, right? Because if it were easy, you're smart people, you would be doing it already, and there wouldn't be the issues that there are. 
And the difficulty is compounded by the fact that if we're really honest with this text, we can admit that we really don't like what this text says. Because it's not easy to grant someone else leadership, and it's not easy to continually die for someone else either. Doing either of those things is difficult, and it doesn't always make me happy. Right? Does it always make you happy? Yeah. Finally getting those looks I expected. Those, yeah, nope, doesn't work that way. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Marriage, writes, what if God's primary intent for your marriage isn't to make you happy, but holy? <laughs> and I don't always like that. And my guess is, neither do you. And yet, I would suggest that by putting these things in, into practice over time, and it will take time, we all know that, we will begin to learn a lot about ourselves and about the other person and about God. And what we, would, what we discover are ways that we will grow, ways that we will become more like Christ, more like who we, we were created to be. And those changes would not happen if we were only seeking our own self-fulfillment and happiness. But the reality is, even if we acknowledge this and, and affirm this idea of prioritizing holiness over happiness... It doesn't take this concept of wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord and make it any less problematic today. So I want to share two things from this text that I discovered as I was reading and listening this week. Two things that were highlighted as areas in which we often overlook when we address this text. The first one is this. The premise of the wife giving the husband leadership is that both people are filled with the Spirit and have allowed the Gospel to impact the center of their being. And this has huge implications for both men and women. For women out there, especially all the single ladies, it could be argued that what Paul is saying is, hey ladies, don't you dare give leadership of your life to any man who is not filled with the Spirit. Because the only way this is going to work is if both people are filled with the Spirit and their lives have been transformed by the power of Jesus. Don't you dare give leadership to someone whose heart has not prepared them to give, to sacrifice, and to do whatever it takes to see you thrive. And this is not some type of thing where he's already determined that this is what you need, but he's willing to hear from you. And he's willing to find out what you need and and what you want and what you think. And then he's willing to pull out all the stops to make that possible. And men, especially single guys, don't you dare assume responsibility for a woman who is not filled with the Spirit. For someone who's not living a life surrendered to the Lord, submitting first and foremost to the Lord should be non-negotiable. Anything less than that is unacceptable. Second, I think we have to ask the question, what type of leadership is he talking about? What does this leadership actually look like? And here's the answer, and I didn't do all the research on this. Everyone I read said the same thing on this. And for some of you, it's going to frustrate you, what I'm about to say, and for other people, it's going to be very liberating. But according to the Scriptures and from what we know, the answer to what type of leadership, what this type of leadership actually looks like, the answer is not there. It's not given for us. The specific answer is not there. You know, does it say that the husband is in charge and he must make all the decisions and the woman must just go along with it? A no, right? It does not say that. Those details are not given because we could argue that's not what the Scriptures are designed or intended to do. 
The scriptures are given to us to provide uh, guidelines regardless of the culture or the society or where or when we live and in the time-space continuum. It doesn't give specific examples because what it's talking about are two spirit-filled people entering into this marriage relationship and they're trying to outdo the other person in service and in love, saying that what the other person wants and what the other person needs is far more important than what I need. And then those two people have to work out for themselves and come to an agreement as to what the specifics of that actually look like. The Bible doesn't give specifics about how it has to be and and all that because the overall premise is universal in marriage. We are to be spirit-filled people Loving each other, trying to outlove each other, and then the specific details can be determined and different by those two spirit filled people. Which raises the question why do people get married then, right? Why do we do that to ourselves and to, frankly, to someone else? Why do we do that? In the past several years, uh, marriage has been downplayed and rejected by more and more people. It, you know, it's, not, it's not being held in high esteem anymore. Instead, uh, people often say marriage is not a word, it's a sentence. It's a life sentence, right? They also say marriage is a three-ring circus, engagement ring, wedding ring, and suffer ring. Marriage is a man and a woman becoming one. The trouble starts when they try to decide which one, right? I mean, it's our view of marriage. In ancient cultures, and even still today, marriage is essentially a business proposition, You didn't marry for love, you didn't marry for romance, you married because it helped your family's station and security in the world. If you've endured such movies as Pride and Prejudice, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? In fact, even in many cultures still today, that's that's what marriage is, a consumeristic business proposal. You get married because it helps your family. However, in the Western culture, we've got it figured out, right? We don't do that anymore. Instead, why do we get married? Because we fall in love, right? There's romance, there's sparks, and we want to be with that person. And so we get married. Because after all, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? That's the way God designed it, right? And yet when we look at the Scripture, Scripture points toward marriage as not being either one of those things. Instead, in Scripture, marriage is seen what some refer to as the gospel reenactment. Look again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that Jesus came from heaven to earth Because of his great love for us, and even in our sin, he gave of himself to demonstrate what his love is for us. And when we embrace him, he comes into our life. And when he comes into our life, he brings us more than just forgiveness of sins, as if that's all there is. He brings life change, a life change in Christ. One uh, person I read, and I, I don't remember who, and I couldn't find it again, so I can't give them credit. It's not my thought, so here you go. They said, think about it this way. If you love someone, you don't want to see them struggling or doing things that hurt themselves or others. You want to make them better. So Jesus comes into our life, and he begins to sanctify us. Sanctification is a big church word that essentially means a gradual process of making things, making someone or something holy, perfect, and complete. It's a process of causing us to more and more die to sin and live in Christ. 
You see, Jesus comes into your life and he gives you a new vision for your life. And he says, I have a plan for you. I know the plans I have for you. And through my love and through my forgiveness, I can help get you there. And he does those things because his desire is for us to become more and more and more like him. And that's the model in which we see that's given to us when it comes to marriage. When one spirit-filled person falls in love and joins together with another spirit-filled person, they look at each other more deeply and they begin to become attracted to what God is doing in the other person's life. And they say, I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to give of my life, invest of my life, pour into that other person so that they can accomplish all they can accomplish and be all they can be in Christ. I will submit to the leadership of a spirit-filled man and I will love sacrificially giving all of myself for that spirit-filled woman. I will put their best interest ahead of my own. And then it's not simply a business proposition or a consumeristic relationship. It becomes something so much grander. It becomes a covenant relationship. A covenant. You see, in a business proposition or a consumeristic relationship, we are committed as long as it's beneficial for us, right? You go somewhere and you buy coffee, If suddenly they triple their prices and the coffee's not any good, what are you going to do? You're going to go somewhere else, right? That's a consumeristic business relationship. As long as it's working for me, things are good. But in a covenant relationship, things are different. The relationship is more important than the individual needs or happiness. In a consumeristic relationship, you say, I will if you will. And if you don't, I probably won't. But in a covenant relationship, it says, I will even if you do not. And this is not viewed as very romantic, but it's very covenantal, if you will, right? It's a covenant relationship. People have often said this type of relationship sounds boring and not very fulfilling. And Tim Keller challenges that when he suggests there is nothing more fulfilling than two people being in a relationship in which each person is not seeking personal fulfillment, but rather the thriving of the other. That's the way this relationship is designed, and it's because of the fact that it's based on the ultimate relationship that Paul is talking about when he gets to verse 32, and he says, this is a profound mystery. What is? Husband and wife relationship, which is why Paul says, you know what, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, right? He's saying that it points toward something else. The husband-wife relationship points toward something else. It points toward Christ and the church, it points toward the love Christ has for us. That it's really not about our marriage and about our spouse and about ourself. It's about all of us. It's about all of us being the bride of Christ, submitting ourselves to the Lord as he loves us sacrificially. Now, I've scratched the surface of, of a lot of this, right? There's so much more we could talk about, so many more resources. There's, there was so much that was left on the cutting room floor, if you will. So, Where does all this information about husbands and wives, where does it leave me? Where does it leave you? Where does it leave us today? Well, I'm going to suggest it leaves us with a challenge. And it's a challenge that's a universal challenge for all of us. Regardless of of where we are in our relationships, if we're single or married or divorced, if we're separated, we're male, female, young, old, or somewhere in between, I think we need to ask the question, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I filled with the Spirit? Because the answer to that question, that will have huge implications on our life. Have I invited God to invade me 
to invade my life at the deepest level? Have I allowed God to shape me and to mold me so that all the people will know that I follow Jesus because of the way I serve and love, and as we talked about last week, forgive other people? Does my spouse, do my children, do the people I work with and for, do they see someone who is filled with the with the Spirit of God? In my relationships with other people, am I willing to love and forgive and relinquish power and to put the needs of someone else above my own because my identity is not in what people think of me, it's what Christ thinks of me. And what Christ thinks of me, as Paul has laid out in the first three chapters, among many other things, is we are chosen, we are loved, and we are forgiven. And as chosen, loved people, we have been told and encouraged and challenged and invited and and pleaded with to love and forgive other people. And as we are challenged to reflect on the question, am I filled with the Spirit, we have the opportunity to move into a time of communion where we celebrate what Christ has done for us, a time where we are reminded of that great sacrificial love that He has for us. Through His love, He said, you know what, I I give of myself for you. I shed my blood for you. And when we take of the bread and when we drink of the juice, we are saying we remember that sacrifice and we celebrate that fact in our life each and every time we do it together. A love that is submitted. A love that leads. A a love that helps you thrive. A love that makes us all equal. In just a moment, the the ushers are going to pass the trays. The trays which contain bread, which represents his body, and juice, which represents his blood. And as Uh, They pass the trays. We invite you to partake and to celebrate and to remember. And as you partake and and as you reflect on the question, are you filled with the Spirit? There may come a a time where you just want to talk to someone about what's going on in your life or you want to have someone pray with you or just want to be encouraged or to know you're not walking through this path alone. There will be members of the prayer team and the leadership team that will make their way over uh, toward the cross as we partake of communion and as we sing together and as we continue to worship the Lord. We wrestle with the question. We celebrate Him. We respond to what God is doing in our life. I'm going to pray and then ask the ushers to come forward as we celebrate communion together this morning. Father God, thank You. Thank You for this time and thank You for this opportunity that we have. The opportunity to to worship You. The opportunity to reflect on what You've done for us and how You've called us to live with each other. Father, now we focus this time on on what you've done for us. Through very real, tangible things, we take of bread and we drink juice and we celebrate you and we remember and we reflect, thanking you for your love and your sacrifice for us. We thank you, Father, for loving us, for being with us. May we focus on you. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.